Hello and welcome to Seeing Red and welcome back. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Thanks for joining us, guys. Yeah, we hope you haven't missed us too much in our week off. Um, It feels like weeks to me. It feels like we've genuinely not recorded together for a month or two. Really? Crazy. Which is weird, isn't it? Yeah. So weird. I feel like I only spoke to you like yesterday. I feel like I have enough of you. <laughs> I'm joking, obviously. <laughs> Just get on with the rest of it then. Well, I've got the best job today. So I'm going to say our thank yous to our newest Patreon supporters. So thank you so much, everyone who signed up. So we've got Stephanie Burke. We've also then got Kelly Paul as well. And my favourite, Fuck Mark. Thank you very much, Mr. Mark. Yes, I did see that. Thank yes. you for that. No, to we had be honest, a good I, chuckle. We did, yeah. It really made me laugh. Absolutely loved it. So um, the guy did get in touch with us. I can't remember your name. I'm really sorry. Uh, Bethan, I, I think, responded. Mr. Mark forever. Mr. Mark, yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you for that. I was actually delighted to see somebody had signed up in the name of Fuck Mark. Um, so fuck <laughs> you and fuck off Bethan. Um, oh okay, dear. so uh, you can also join us on all of the usual social medias as well. Uh, we're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube, aren't we? A load of you have come over on YouTube as well. So uh, we've got hundreds and hundreds of subscribers on there now. And it would be uh, amazing to get to a thousand. It is mostly the episodes that we put out, but we do accompany them with different pictures, videos. And we have also recorded some random episodes for YouTube specifically, uh, usually of just us talking shit. But uh, if you don't already follow us over on YouTube, do head over there and subscribe. Uh, It would be most appreciated. Yes. And if you are listening to this on the day it's released, which is the Wednesday, then tomorrow on YouTube, or if you're a Patreon supporter over on the Patreon feed, you will have our interview that we did with Lee Alice, son of... Tony Alice, whose murder we covered back in season two, I believe. Was it season three? I think it was. Season two, I think. I think so. So that'll be something extra over on YouTube if you want to come and follow us. Yeah, a little teaser for you. But it's a really brutally honest interview that we did with him. And um, he was there on the day that his father sadly lost his life. He witnessed the events and um, it really was quite a brutal, brutal murder, actually. And I don't know if we can really use that word because... Legally, it wasn't proven to be, but yeah, uh, very, very interesting case nonetheless. Really so, yeah, interesting. Do, do head over there to join us, uh, definitely. So this week, I have chosen to cover a crime that is a first for us and will hopefully give us a bit of a break from the brutal murders that we've been discussing recently. Because we need, we've needed that, haven't we? Yeah. We've had some appalling stuff. We really have. And I feel like you started us off on this track with the D.B. Cooper case because it's you know nobody got murdered it was it was more light-hearted it's what i like to call a victimless crime yeah which it isn't obviously but (laughs) but i still like to call it a victimless crime yeah and this is the thing it's there's no nice crimes because obviously things are illegal for a reason but hopefully this case and then also last week um well the week before last it kind of gives you a bit of a rest from the murders and hopefully that's good bit of a palate cleanser for people So I'm sure we're going to be back with brutal murders soon, but today we're going to be looking at a crime that, whilst must be absolutely horrific to live through, um, the good thing is nobody dies and the prison sentences are in months, not years. 
This week, I'm going to be discussing a couple of things around bigamy in the UK. Very exciting. We've, it's definitely a first for us, isn't it? We've never covered anything like this. But equally, this is um, it's taken very seriously as a crime, isn't it? So I think it'd be interesting to find out a bit more about why it's um, why it is taken so seriously, what the ramifications can be of somebody committing bigamy. Absolutely. So polygamy is the practice of marrying multiple spouses. So monogamy is marriage consisting of only two people. And when a man is married to more than one wife at the same time, sociologists call this polygyny. And when a woman is married to more than one husband at a time, it is called polyandry or polyndry. I'm not sure. If a marriage includes multiple husbands and wives, it can be then called a group marriage. So in many countries, even if their laws are that marriage should be monogamous and bigamy is illegal, adultery isn't illegal. So people might have multiple partners, but from this very basic legal standpoint, you can't actually be married to more than one person legally. So bigamy is the act of marrying more than one spouse and it is illegal in Britain. It is a crime under the Matrimonial Causes Act 1973 and it is punishable by up to seven years in prison. And that's what I remember as well. I I didn't know the exact maximum sentence, but I did know that it was taken that seriously that you could go to prison for, for years. Yeah. Which I just find weird. It's really interesting because you would think to yourself that why is it such a big prison sentence when nobody is physically hurt but it's because of the mental hurt and the anguish and the pain that you can cause somebody through deceiving them that it is actually that serious so most commonly neither spouse would know about the other but even if you gave your husband or wife permission to marry someone else it is still a legal thing to do without divorce And so in England and Wales, a divorce is started by one person issuing a divorce petition on the basis of five facts. These five facts are either adultery, unreasonable behaviour, desertion for two years, two years of separation without the other party's consent, or five years separation with consent. So you kind of have to have one of those or multiples to be able to then file for divorce. And also, I guess, unreasonable behaviour would incorporate so many different reasons wouldn't it absolutely you could just prove that you felt that was unreasonable and that would be fine so bigamy is a crime in most countries that recognize only monogamous marriages so a second marriage is illegal unless a divorce is fully and complete and anti-bigamy laws were first established in ancient rome and strict anti-polygamy laws were passed in 285 a.d that mandated monogamy as the only form of legal marital relationship. So it's been illegal or against rules and that sort of thing since then. Like, that's so crazy. And then this had apparently traditionally been the case in classical Greece and Rome. And then this spread through the world whilst Christianity did. So kind of like alongside Christianity. In the 16th century, male bigamists were subjected to harsh punishments such as execution exile and lengthy prison sentences. King James I of England made a bigamy a capital offence in 1603 and then in 1828 the death penalty was replaced by a punishment of seven years transportation. So nowadays the punishments are less severe but committing this crime can still land you in jail. 
Around the world, the laws vary. So I took a look at a few places that we've covered in this show. So in Australia, it is illegal. You can face up to five years imprisonment. In the United States, it's illegal in every state and again, up to five years imprisonment. In the Republic of Ireland, polygamy is illegal and you can face up to seven years imprisonment for bigamy. In Indonesia, polygamy is legal as it is a predominantly Muslim country. Do you remember which case we covered for that was featured around Indonesia? Um, oh, it's about the best friends. Yeah, the I can't ice remember coffee. the name. The yeah. iced coffee where she poisoned a best friend. Yeah, mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. I was like, a bit of a random country to pluck yeah. out of there. Our one and only foray into Malaysia. Yeah. So far. So far. The most famous bigamist on record is Giovanni Vigliotto. Vigliotto? I'm not sure. Vigliotto. Vigliotto. He had 105 wives. Fucking hell. Can you imagine? That's that's ridiculous. I know. I don't even think I know 105 women. I don't don't know 105 people, full stop. On April the 11th, 1983, he was sentenced to 28 years for fraud and six for bigamy, and he was also fined 336,000 US dollars. Before divorce was an option available to the majority, or was an easier option, bigamy was seen as a way to escape an unhappy marriage. Until well after the Second World War, divorce was costly and almost impossible to obtain unless both parties agreed, so it was often just easier to just move to a different part of the country and start again. It was easy to get married a second or third time in another town without anybody being able to check if your first spouse was still alive, so you could lie and say that they died or anything. Here in the UK, bigamy was first classified as a felony in the Bigamy Act of 1603, and from 1861, bigamy was designated as a Class 1 Offences Against the Person Indicatable Felony, and was therefore punishable by death by hanging. But that was only if it was proven, and it was impossible for vicars to check that the information people gave on official documents was correct, because each district kept its own separate registers for births, marriages and deaths. And that's all it would have been back in the back in the day, mm-hmm. wouldn't it? You know, um, decades and decades ago, there wasn't proper computer systems or anything. So it would have just been this big book with people's names and addresses in. That's it. And they just had to accept that people were telling the truth when they said they were a bachelor or a spinster or that their spouse had died. Giving wrong information on official documents was and still is a criminal offence, but it was really commonplace and prosecutions even for bigamy were quite rare. Nowadays, you're less able to get away with lying on official documents. Um, And what I found quite interesting was there was a whole article I was reading about how historians have uncovered when they're starting to do genealogy and they're looking back through families they find so many times that people are just upped and left their spouse and then married someone else and because now we can look at six different regions of documents in one go we can see that that happening whereas back then you just wouldn't have had an idea and especially with social media you are less able to hide a secret life And it was Facebook that revealed our first bigamist's double life. Yvonne had been happily married to her husband Maurice for 17 years when he began acting strangely and her suspicions were aroused. The pair didn't have the most traditional marriage so they lived apart quite often but it it worked for them. So this wasn't particularly unusual for this couple. It was how they'd lived their life from when they met. They'd met in Nigeria in 1995 
They returned to the UK and got married within three months of meeting at a Scottish castle. They just described it as love at first sight. Yvonne has said, It was very romantic. We stopped in London to tell my family, who were a little anxious at first, but were quickly reassured by Maurice, who said he only wanted to make me happy. And they had a son, Sebastian, together two years into their marriage, and the family returned to live in Nigeria. The pair also had previous relationships and marriages and they had children from their other marriages as well so they enjoyed luxury holidays to Cape Town, Mauritius, Kenya and Maurice's daughter from an early relationship would often join them. Maurice continued to work abroad so he worked in places like Nigeria, Japan, France and Norway. He was an oil contractor so he just went all around the globe. He'd just fly home whenever he could so he was off doing that. They were at home and then he'd come back and he'd have a lovely time and then off he'd go somewhere else. So when Maurice was offered a job in Oman in 2011 he took it and he left the family in Nigeria. Yvonne then returned to the UK to support her son from her previous relationship, Joshua, through his GCSEs. So Sebastian went with her and then she and the boys lived in England whilst Maurice lived and worked in Oman. So as I said, whilst this isn't really a normal setup for a marriage, it worked for this family. Yvonne and Maurice would text and call regularly and they kept in contact all the time. When they lived apart, they would have return visits regularly and she trusted him. He came back for their 16-year wedding anniversary celebrations. But Yvonne didn't know that around the same time, Maurice had met someone else, someone he wanted to marry. Yvonne's life seemed to carry on as normal, but then Maurice began missing his trips back to the UK to see Yvonne and her sons, and he blamed this on pressure at work and depression. But the more times that he missed trips and made excuses, the more upset Yvonne became. She tried to give him space, as asked, but she felt there were cracks in their relationship because he would tell her that he was depressed living in Amman and he was missing his family, but then instead of taking the time to see them and taking those opportunities, he would make his trips home shorter, having really quick visits rather than staying for weeks at a time like he used to do. Now, I really hate it when people lie about having something medical to get away with their stories. This is something that you find quite often in cases. If someone's willing to lie about one thing, they'll lie about lots. And she really believed that he was suffering from depression and tried her best to support him, giving him the space he said he needed, trying to be accommodating. And so I just found that really horrific because there's people who are really struggling with their mental health and this guy's just lying about it. Mm, But I suppose it's such an easy one as a go-to because you can't really see it, you can't feel it, you can't hear it. So somebody could easily lie about it, I suppose. Exactly. You know, she's not going to see that he's not got a cast on his leg when he said he broke his leg. It's... But it just makes me so cross. But also, how awful for her, thinking that her husband is away from the family, away from her in a different country, working to provide for the family, and also really struggling with depression, and she can't be with him to help him. So that actually must have had a real impact on her. Yeah, I totally agree. I definitely agree. She really tried to help him. Because as far as she was concerned, it was true. Yeah, exactly. So things came to a head when he missed Christmas and he turned up at the family home a month later than he had planned. He was supposed to come home for Christmas 2012 on the 22nd of December, but on the day Yvonne was expecting him home, he phoned and told her not to come to the airport and said, Don't come to the airport, I'm not coming. I'm so depressed, I've seen a counsellor who has advised I don't come home. And when he finally arrived in the January, Yvonne tried to get him to open up about his struggles, but he refused to talk about it with her. 
She told him that he had changed and she wasn't happy and the couple had a massive row and Maurice stormed out of the house. He had hired a car on his arrival in the UK and he drove off in that car and Yvonne expected him to return shortly. However, Yvonne didn't hear from her husband for two days and so she was naturally really worried. At this point, she still believed he was suffering with depression, struggling with his mental health. So she was really worried about him and what he potentially could do. Yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd immediately go to the the awful thought that maybe he'd gone somewhere to kill himself. Yeah, definitely. Especially the fact that he stormed out. Yeah, after a row. She must have really been hating herself. Yeah, absolutely. And especially because she'd been tel- trying to get him to open up about everything. Maybe she felt like, oh, I've pushed him too far. Yeah. This is his home as well. So where's he sleeping? Where's he eating? You'd, you'd really be worried. Who's he fucking? And that is the next question. So basically, when he wasn't answering his phone, um, Yvonne was really worried. The boys were really worried. So she decided to try and call the car hire company and just see whether he'd return the car and if he'd gone back to Oman or see if she could find out anything. So she explained to the woman there that she was really worried about Maurice, especially with the depression that had so vividly altered his behaviour. And she asked whether the car had been returned. And he was a repeat customer of the company. The woman on the phone was able to remember him hiring another car a few weeks earlier. She was able to confirm to Yvonne that the car had been returned, but she remarked that she remembered him asking for the most expensive car last time, around Christmas, but strange that this time he'd wanted the cheapest option. And hang on, didn't um, didn't he not go home at Christmas so he shouldn't have been in the UK? Exactly. Your yeah. alarm bells are ringing just like Yvonne's. Surely Maurice had been in Oman over Christmas. Yeah. But she played along and asked the car hire employee for more info. Yvonne reiterated these worries about his mental state and the woman said, I can help you. It seems like he's registered it to an address in the Mid- West Midlands. And she gave her the address. So whilst I'm really happy that this helped Yvonne out, surely that's a breach of data protection right there? I I sort of get it, yeah. I totally understand why she would want to help. And really, I I would say what harm has been done because all this is going to do is bring his other crimes to the fore. Uh, But I just think of of my work and any any of us, really. It's just taken so seriously, isn't it? I cannot imagine ever breaching that data like that and giving that information out, even if I wanted to help someone. I know. I know this was like eight years or so ago. So it was before the whole GDPR changes. The GDPR bollocks. But the Data Protection Act was still there. But yeah, I'm still shocked that she would do that as well. Yeah. Unless maybe the car hire profile was set up in joint names originally back when they were in a happy marriage and either of them could hire a car on their account. Potentially there's something like that maybe and that would make sense. But Mm. I don't I don't know about that and this bit of the story just didn't quite sit right with me. No, it goes against your ethics, doesn't it? It does. And a bit like you said, I think with our jobs and being drilled into you that you can't give away data protection, I'm like, what? She gave yeah. me your address? I mean we talk we told you guys it would be a break from uh, from murder, but I wasn't sure that we'd delve into breaches of GDPR. <laughs> so it's certainly uh it's certainly a white collar crime today, isn't it? It's very, it's probably quite boring for everyone. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Just listening to us natter on about not giving away <laughs> personal information. <laughs> and adhering to the GDPR regulation, yeah. Absolutely. So Yvonne looked up the address and she got a phone number, but when she rang the number, it went to voicemail. 
Her suspicions were aroused enough now and she was worried enough to get some friends involved. So they kind of got together and had a bit of a Miss Marple sesh and they found out that the man that lived at that address worked for a company with offices in Muscat. So she said she thought to herself, okay, these must be friends from Amman. He must have come back to the UK, didn't feel able to come home because of depression and he's gone to stay with them. She really didn't expect him to have had an affair because his mental health was so poor already she felt he wouldn't be able to deal with the stresses of work major depression and also secret keeping and he told her that he found cheating disgusting she truly believed that he was a romantic and caring husband but clearly something had gone wrong between the pair even if this was a surprise to Yvonne Maurice didn't return home she finally got hold of him but he didn't want to speak to her he didn't want to come home and then that was that Maurice continued to ignore Yvonne and as time went on she became more annoyed than worried. He wasn't just ignoring her, he was ignoring his son and his stepson too. And more than just ignoring them, he hadn't even bothered to say goodbye before he left. So enough was enough and the following month Yvonne chose to begin divorce proceedings. She said, I'd had enough of him being so distant emotionally as well as being physically 3,600 miles away. So time went on with Yvonne and Maurice living apart and divorce proceedings continuing on in the background. In April 2013, Yvonne saw a picture of Maurice's sisters and their daughters in Muscat and one of his sisters was wearing a fascinator. It gave her a weird niggling doubt in the back of her mind and she kind of half joked to a friend, you don't think he's got married, do you? But she knew how absurd it sounded and her friends laughed and said she was being ridiculous but she wasn't actually being ridiculous at all. Maurice had actually gotten married. He'd met Suzanne late in 2011 and the pair got engaged in May 2012. Over Christmas in 2011, Yvonne and Sebastian had flown out to Amman to join Maurice, but he had told her that he was working in the desert on Christmas and Boxing Day and he wouldn't see them until the 27th. She didn't know this at the time, but he was actually back in the UK with Suzanne at that point. In February 2014, just days before the final divorce hearing, Yvonne couldn't stop thinking about that phone number and address from the final time they'd argued and Maurice had left. She dug the number out again and decided to try phoning it again, but this time pretending to be from the car hire company. She asked the man who answered, can you tell me your name and your relationship to this man? And the man told her Maurice was his brother-in-law. Yvonne couldn't believe her ears and hung up, but she quickly phoned back as herself and a woman answered. She asked her to clarify what this guy had said. She told her, I don't understand why this man said he was Maurice's brother-in-law. And the woman said, well, because he's married to my sister. Yvonne described Maurice and said, are you sure it's the same man? And she said, yes. And said, who are you? And Yvonne said, well, I'm his wife. Isn't that horrific over the phone as well? Yeah, for all for her world to come crashing down. So already she was going through this divorce from him, but it would it was a long marriage, really, wasn't it? Over sixteen years, mm-hmm. and then all of that—not all of it, but a lot of it's been a lie. And has he done it before? Exactly. So Yvonne was in shock and decided to inform her solicitor. She also didn't want to just leave things like that, so she decided to try and find out more, and trawling back through Facebook, she managed to find the woman's page and click on it. Her profile was her in her wedding dress, and it was Maurice and Suzanne in their wedding outfits, leaning in for a kiss. She could see that they had got married in March 2013, two months after he'd been home, and Yvonne even went to her mother-in-law's to ask what she knew, but she told her that she didn't know what she was talking about. 
It turns out that Maurice had told his family that the pair had been divorced for some time and Yvonne was this crazy individual who was acting maliciously now that she'd found out that he was moving on. So along with her solicitor, Yvonne went to court and asked the judge would they consider this as bigamy and postpone the divorce hearing. The judge refused and said if you think he's committed bigamy you have to go to the police and report him. So she did and Maurice was arrested in October 2014 and he was given a six-month suspended prison sentence after admitting to the bigamy at Wirral Magistrates Court. Yvonne was given 65% of the house in the divorce settlement. And his bigamous wife was very much a victim too, but in a different way. So he'd obviously been lying to her this whole time. He'd presented himself as a divorced man when they'd met. And Yvonne even wrote Suzanne a letter and sent her all the documents from the court hearing. And in her letter, she said, I'm sorry to tell you that you've entered into a bigamous marriage with my husband. I'm sure this is very difficult for you to read as it is for me to write. Oh, she sounds lovely as well, doesn't she? Yvonne, his first wife. I think so too. And we both know an Yvonne and I imagined all the way through this. I love Yvonne. Yvonne. I fucking love Yvonne. We do so know Yvonne. This whole time. Yeah, oh my I god, was that's taking me oh right back. Oh my god, imagine back. if it was her. Yeah. I'd be fucking livid if it was if it oh my god, to I'd that go Yvonne. There. Yeah, I would. I'd sort them out. Her husband wouldn't do this thing. No, not at all. No way. And that wasn't the end of it for Yvonne, because if Maurice had been able to ditch his wife, his son and his stepson so easily, and had been able to lie about being married, what else had he hidden from her? She asked the solicitors to re-examine the bank statements that he had submitted and she also travelled to Amman where she found that he had altered bank documents to show his salary is lower, he had deleted certain outgoings and that he had declared his annual earnings roughly 60 grand lower than what he truly earned. He was trying to conceal the hotel and restaurant bills for his secret trips back to the UK with Suzanne and he had been on various holidays to India and South Africa with Suzanne whilst pretending he was at work in Oman. But I suppose the nature of his work would have made this really easy, wouldn't it? To have two lives. But I say two lives, it's not even really two lives. He's obviously given up on Yvonne and his kids and he's with Suzanne. He just perhaps wants to avoid a costly divorce or just can't bring himself to have that difficult conversation with Yvonne to say our marriage is over I would say it was probably more financial from the sounds of it he didn't want a divorce so he thought well I've met somebody I'll marry her I'll keep Yvonne in the background I don't really want to be with her but if I tell her and divorce her it's going to cost me a fortune yeah and potentially as well he's got into a bit of a web of lies with Suzanne where he said oh yeah we're divorced but then when she starts pressing for marriage or pressing for more well how do you go back on what you said before so you kind of have to go along with it potentially he had also withheld information about an inheritance that he had and so Yvonne asked for her consent to divorce to be overturned because it had been agreed upon using incorrect information and a second divorce judgment was allowed In this, the judge cited 56 cases of fraud and said it summed up a snapshot of what is probably much more dishonesty. At this second hearing, the judge ruled the first settlement had been built on several lies and that Maurice had been totally dishonest. And Yvonne was then awarded the house and Maurice had to pay her £58,000 worth of legal fees. Yvonne said, seeing him in court was horribly traumatic. There was no sign of the warm, compassionate man that I once knew. 
And she has since said, while I find it humiliating that my personal life has been exposed in this, it was important for me to get the story out. The story has gone viral. I've had people get in contact with me from all around the world, some who don't even know me. At least he's been publicly shamed and everyone now knows what kind of a heartless person he really is. But she was left with one outstanding question. Why on earth didn't he just divorce her? Money. It's got to be down exactly. to money. Yeah. I think so. So do we know whether he's still with Suzanne then? Um, I'm not sure. I couldn't see much about that because I think when all of this came out in the papers and stuff, it was all from Yvonne kind yeah. of talking about it. So I don't know. Yeah, because I suppose that marriage is null and void, but she may have forgiven him. Yeah, and they may have then had a second wedding, but yeah. a second marriage that is now a legal version after his court after his sort of trial and stuff. So if you think it's bad to have one bigamous marriage, this next case will really shock you because Emily Horn was in the papers in 2011 after marrying, without being divorced, her sixth husband. She had a really checkered past and her story is really crazy. In 2009, she had been spared jail when the judge gave her a 10-month suspended jail sentence at Manchester's Minshall Street Crown Court for bigamously marrying five times. He told her she undermined the institution of marriage and she admitted it was probably time she got a divorce. But two years later, she was in the papers again. So what got her to this point? Emily was quite an unruly teenager. She was well known to the police and would leave home for days on end. She left school on her 16th birthday with no qualifications. Her father has been quoted as saying, I saw her descend into a streetwise urchin with an unnatural appetite for sex. Emily got married for the first and only legal time in December 1996, the day after she turned 18. Her husband was a soldier, a guy called Paul. He had joined the Royal Irish Regiment but met her again on her 18th birthday when he was home on leave. And when he was posted abroad, they parted but they didn't get divorced. When he came home after six months, she had disappeared and she contacted him only once to claim that she had given birth to their daughter who had died at seven months of age from meningitis. I really doubt this is true but I might be wrong and I am basing that on the fact that she loved to lie. Over the course of the next few decades, she also lied about having a baby that she gave up for adoption. She lied about her sister dying when actually she was away at uni. She hadn't died at all. Um, she told people that she had cancer, that she was HIV positive. There was loads of different medical lies. And also that a family member had died of a drugs overdose. So there is the potential that she'd given birth to a daughter I that had died. Yeah, but maybe. It's I, not true. I'm not buying that. I think she's a billy bullshitter. Absolutely. It sounds to me a little bit Munchausen's by proxy as well. So she's making up, she is making up some stuff about herself, but making up a lot of stuff about other people um, for, I suppose, maybe in the desire to get sympathy for that. Yeah. So Emily was calling herself Emily LeCount when she met her next husband. She was working behind a bar when she met Sean and soon after they got together, she moved in with him. He proposed after just four months together and they got married in February 1999 at Leeds Registry Office. At this point in her life, Emily was claiming to be a student physicist. She was in reality a glamour model who had roles in adult movies. And I know you like to have the details here, Mark, so apparently she starred in Confessions of a Photographer 2 and Freddy's Filthy Fuckers 2. Yeah, filthy bitch. 
So Emily went to work in Norway as a chef and there she met a new guy. But he, as he was divorced already, he kind of wasn't ready to get married again. So that wasn't going to work out for her. And she went back to England a few months later. He never heard from her again. And back in England, she returned to Sean, the most recent husband. But soon after, she left him for his best friend and actually his best man. Their relationship didn't last very long because whilst he did find her intoxicating, he just couldn't deal with all her lying. Do you know what? She sounds to me like a very, very intense person. So the sort of person that is either attracting the type of person then that really wants to be with her and will propose marriage after a couple of months, or she is just so intense that they they do become intoxicated by her. Yeah, there's just something about her, isn't there? In December 2000, she married a man called Chris at the same registry office, but using another pseudonym. That's fucking brave. She yep. could have been recognised. Mm-hmm. She actually then moved her third husband into the home that she shared with her second husband and convinced each man that the other one was just a friend. That reminds me a bit of Mick Philpott. Yeah. When he moved, so he had his wife and he moved his girlfriend in as mm-hmm. well. So she got caught out because Chris found a letter addressed to her, but with Sean's surname. And then in February 2001, she walked out on them both. Chris went to the police and she was cautioned for two offences of bigamy in August 2001. But this just wasn't enough to deter her. And in 2002, she met a man called James on a train. And within a month, she was living in his Victorian home in Ipswich. And after she proposed to him by text message, they got married just four weeks into their relationship. She told him that she had been married before, but it had been annulled. But then a week after the wedding, she told him that she was still married to Chris. Never mind the other two as well. And then when she ran off with one of his friends and refused to come back, he then went to the police as well. So she was arrested and she was charged under the name Emiliana Carmichael at Ipswich Crown Court. Such a porn star's name. I know, right? Isn't it? Um, And that was at Ipswich Crown Court in January 2004. And she admitted bigamy and she was described as a very predatory female. A psychiatric report stated that she suffered from bipolar disorder and suggested that she was seeking to compensate for the failings of her unloving parents by seeking love and security in marriage. But that that totally could be true, couldn't mm-hmm. it? But I felt bad for her parents because that's kind of putting the blame on them a bit and I feel bad yeah, for her, them. Her dad called her a, an urchin. <laughs> so he, he was probably a shit dad. And obviously he hadn't supported her and she left school on the 16th birthday. It could be all down to her, but I find that hard to believe. I would say her parents were pretty shit. I don't know. From what I've read, the parents seem like they tried their best, but because they got divorced, she then kind of went off the rails, which I think sometimes yeah, which you do does see. Happen. Yeah, yeah. And we so, saw that with the White Widow. Yeah, I think that was the thing. There was a catalyst of her parents getting divorced or separating at the very least was the catalyst. And then she then just needed to get married all the time yeah i just think that familial love like that should be unconditional and her dad should still love and support her instead of denigrating her in the media which is obviously done but then that was potentially a long time after she's done all of this crazy stuff yeah he didn't yeah. say it on her she is a bad no that's true yeah but there's lots of people who have divorced parents they don't go off and marry six men <laughs> No. But there we go. So at this point, while she had been incarcerated for bigamy, Emily was still technically married to her first husband, Paul. 
And so I find it really bizarre that I don't think you could force somebody, but that she wasn't made to divorce him. I find it strange that the courts wouldn't try and imply, like, Im, like force you to do it. I don't know what the right word would yeah, be, but to, how do yeah, they not what you do mean, that? To, it's almost to undo the legal act. Yeah. Yeah, that's weird. And then in June 2007, whilst working in a massage parlour in Rochdale, Emily met Ooh. Ashley. Rochdale. Um, that makes me laugh because that reminds me of Adam over at the UK True Crime Podcast. He, um, he's a massive fan of Rochdale saunas. <laughs> uh, he's always there checking them out. So He's uh, always talking about them, so it did make me think of that as well. Yeah, he. Um, this episode's dedicated to him then. I think this it is. This one's for you, Adam, yeah. And it's, you know, it's not a sauna, but it's a massage parlour. It's Same kind of thing. Basically the same well, thing. Well, we, we know what they are. Yeah, they're, uh, yeah. <laughs> so a month after this pair met, they were getting married. Emily wore jeans and a vest top for the wedding ceremony at Chadderton Town Hall, and they had their reception at Chinese All You Can Eat. Now, you... Do you know, do you know, do you know what this fucking reminds me of? Yeah, this reminds this reminds me of when we used to work together, and a certain uh, well-known chain of pubs, a pub, a big pub, and people used to get married at the registry office up the road, and we'd see them walk past where we worked in full wedding attire, with you know tattoos on displays bulging out of their back fat over the top of their wedding dress, and then they'd go into fucking into the pub for their wedding reception at least those people are wearing wedding dresses and actually wearing suits mark this lady is wearing a jeans and a vest top yeah but they should have been wearing a fucking bag because they were all fat and ugly jesus christ but they were beth and they were, weren't the sort of people that should be allowed to get married oh my goodness or the sort of people we are that should be allowed to wear a wedding dress this week now now that you've said that people can't get married if they're fat and ugly that is horrible well you can get married in secret jesus but don't then parade don't fucking parade through the town on your way to the pub to have your oh my god you know your burger and chips as your and your free pint as your wedding toast you know what i literally put in my script you might be expecting me to judge this but there's no judgment here but there clearly is from judgy judgy pants over there mark well crikey scummers well Anyway, moving back to the story, I was just going to say I love all-you-can-eat Chinese. So that sounds like a delicious... Oh, all-you-can-eat Chinese, Mm -hmm. yeah. Minimum of three plates, trips up to the buffet. I can't can't do any less than three trips. No, you've got to get your money's worth at an all-you-can-eat Chinese. Mm -hmm, Definitely. Great place for a wedding venue, actually. This is my thinking. For a wedding uh, reception, Uh, That's what I'm thinking. I liked my food at my wedding, but all-you-can-eat Chinese, delicious. Yeah, you'd have enjoyed that more, wouldn't you? I would have definitely ruined my dress. <laughs> yeah, you'd have had like um, Soy sauce. sweet and sour yeah. sauce dribbling down it. Yeah. So as they left their wedding to go to Scotland for their honeymoon, Emily admitted to Ashley that she was already married and that she had been to prison. And she then produced a load of newspaper clippings. And the shocked bloke just didn't know what to do. He has since said, I was in love with the girl, but she played me for a fool. She told me that she had womb cancer. And Emily told him that she still believed they were married in her heart. But then the couple split up. Emily went to the police to make a false allegation of assault against Ashley and this new bigamous marriage came to light. After she was bailed and the case was passed to Oldham CID, 
Emily vanished. And finally, in November 2008, she was found by the police in the West Midlands and was charged with bigamy. So that takes us to July 2009, when she faced court after admitting bigamy. And on the 27th of July, she was spared jail and given a 10-month suspended sentence. The judge, Mushtaq Coker, said, I take the view that when someone like you contracts marriage at the drop of a hat, as you did, then it undermines the institution of marriage. He said it was clear that Emily was impulsive. She had bipolar disorder, but she was responding to treatment. And supporting her through her trial was her newest boyfriend, Wayne. She had moved in with him and his parents in Kingswinford, West Midlands, just days after meeting him in a hospital A&E department. And leaving court, Emily claimed to have been vindicated, saying, I'm just delighted to be free, but I think it is about time I got a divorce. I need to put all this behind me. No shit. I know. And she was also quoted as saying before the trial, as a child, I was always eager to please. I like making people happy. The thing I'm guilty of most is falling in love. Sadly, it led to chaos and a lot of people suffered. As the situation got more complicated, it was easier to bury my head in the sand. Lisa, the sister of Emily's fifth husband, Ashley, told reporters outside court that she was angry about the judge's decision, saying Emily had lied about having cancer, she'd pretended to have several miscarriages, and she said to the reporters, my brother's life has been ruined and he has to start again. He did love her and she manipulated him. And so you'd probably expect here Emily's going to get a divorce and stop marrying people, but as I hinted at when I introduced the case, she didn't. Whilst she was living with and was engaged to a chap called Stuart, she was calling herself Max Acast Kiberon, Emily began looking for love on American dating sites. Why would you choose an alias like that? I know. Talk about drawing attention to yourself. Max Acastes Quiberon. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, she was obviously on a, a manic bipolar episode when she came up with that mm-hmm. one. So she told police officer Fred that she had been injured serving with the army in Afghanistan. And so they had a long distance romance that culminated in him paying for her to fly out to get married to him in Pittsburgh City Hall. So telling Stuart she had to go away for a few days, but she'd be back later, Emily flew out. And on the 25th of October, they were married. The marriage broke down during the honeymoon in Ireland. So this was her sixth marriage in 15 years. And in the meantime, Stuart had been increasingly worried when he didn't hear from his fiancée and he went to the police to report her missing. They investigated and told him she'd flown to America and then he was informed of her criminal history. God, can you imagine hearing that? You just, you wouldn't believe it, would you? It's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah. There you are thinking your fiancée's gone missing because she was supposed to be home after a couple of days. And then you hear she's flown to America got married to someone and you hear about all of her past as well yeah a close friend of fred the american guy told the press he is really embarrassed and now he wants an annulment this woman has duped so many men she needs to be stopped before she does it again but emily was unrepentant and amazingly Stuart, the man that she'd left back in britain stood by her saying to the press i have known emily almost a year she's undergoing psychiatric treatment for two years and at the moment she's away at college studying that is all i want to say But sadly for Stuart, the press were able to dig deeper and they then published she was not away studying at all. Instead, she was living elsewhere and was working in a pub. And Stuart's father said she wants stopping before anyone else falls foul of her evil ways. But Stuart doesn't see it this way. 
And then there were a few other news articles about Emily available online, including a conviction for fraud when she pretended to be her partner to convince a doctor to prescribe her medicine. Um, she basically tried to dress up like a man and gone along to an appointment in his name. I think what's interesting about this case is she, she's obviously really unhinged and, and severely mentally ill, and it's manifested in this way, that the bigger me, it could have, I think, manifested in, in a different way. She could have gone down a different path with this, and it could have manifested in a much worse way, couldn't it? Absolutely, definitely. If she'd have, if she'd have had children or her own children or children that, I don't know, in a different setup, she could have... Um, I don't know, she could have killed him, she could have killed other people, she could have been a serial killer for all we know. Yeah, makes you think of someone like Joanna Dennehy that we looked at right at the beginning of the podcast, yeah. where she just flipped and, and went crazy and killed so many people. On a killing kind spree. Of, yeah, you just don't know how someone's going to react. So yeah, this is the thing, she went this way, but and she obviously can't stop herself. She's then no, like, that's oh, it. I can't it's do compulsive. it in the UK. So compulsive. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen any more marriages since these articles from sort of 20, what was it, 2012 or so. So I haven't really seen anything since then, which is quite good. So hopefully that's something. Hope, yeah, hopefully she's had the medical attention that she needed and and she's better because that's the root of all of this, isn't it? Yeah. And it's it's kind of a bit of a sad thing, but it... It seemed like that Emily had always dreamed of being married. Her dad did tell a paper an anecdote from when she was just 12 years old and she'd seen a wedding dress in a charity shop window, begged him to purchase it for her. And he said, she grabbed my hand and said, Daddy, look at that beautiful dress. Please buy it for me. It all seemed so innocent. So I paid £20 for it. We took it home and she tried it on straight away, twirling around. She was beaming with delight. So even from the age of 12, that was something she aspired to and she wanted. And I wonder if that must have been a real turning point for her at a really impressionable age at 12 as well. And I wonder if wearing that dress got her attention and made her see herself in a different way. You just don't know that the seeds were very much sown, I would say, uh, from that incident. Yeah, I think so. So there we go, two cases of Big Me from the UK and hopefully an episode which is a little bit lighter for you all. But we mustn't forget that this is still a crime. Yes, Officer Bethan, getting your ethics there. This still is a crime, people. Well, this is the reason why I've not used surnames for the guys that Emily married. A lot of it is still available online, but I just feel like they are victims in this and I kind of didn't want to really publicize too much or like who they are because mm. i just to be honest you, you are right yeah because the the damage that she's done to those guys particularly when she's lied about having miscarriages that is really cruel and when she's lied about having cancer um not only have they got that embarrassment of being duped and questioning their own um what's the word you know when like you instincts just, yeah that's it but they've also got all of that trauma all of that excitement and then all of the trauma and it was all a fucking lie that that is literally going to live with you forever so whilst I, i'm taking the piss and saying yes it's we must not forget but you are right actually i do concede that you're absolutely right it is still a crime and it does do a lot of damage that's it. And Detective Constable Colette Keller, her of Greater Manchester Police, said after Emily's 2009 trial, bigamy is not something to be sniggered at or brushed under the carpet. Keller said it is a very serious offence and the lives of five men had been severely affected by her selfish and cruel actions. And I think that's what 
I kind of wanted to finish with. And whilst we have been able to have a bit of a lighthearted discussion around it and a lot more jokes and stuff than normal, actually, yeah, those guys have been really affected by her and her lies. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, hopefully, like you've said, because there's not been anything subsequent to all of this that's come out in the media, it does seem that, and she would be quite well known now, it does seem that she's behaving herself and I reckon she's probably on the right medication and doesn't have that need to do this. Yeah, I really hope that she's had the medical help that she actually needs, so yeah. there we go. Did you yeah, very, enjoy that episode, Mark? I did, yeah. Very different case for it. A particular highlight was when we were talking about the GDPR breaches. Um, no, yeah. I'm just kidding. No, it that was, is a uh, highlight. <laughs> it was, but we we needed this. And I think it is so interesting. We are a true crime podcast. We're not a murder podcast. And I think sometimes we forget that. And we actually sometimes probably, well, I'd say most of the time, we enjoy more delving into this kind of crime than the murders because they can take you to a dark place and we can have a bit more of a laugh with these it's like the peru too isn't it when we covered that mm-hmm, so the, the two women that smuggled drugs and they um they ended up in prison but we were able to have a real laugh with that and i think that we've not really been able to do that as much although some reviewers would disagree but i think we've not been able to do that as much because we've covered some really heavy stuff over the last few months now really heavy stuff yeah no i completely agree so there we go thank you for listening guys thank you for joining us once again and do let us know your thoughts on the case don't let us know if you decide to go watch confessions of a photographer too i don't want to know what what was the other one something fuckers to oh my god um freddy's fuckers filthy fuck (laughs) freddy's filthy fuckers too let us know give us your reviews on that one do not i don't want to know about it good for her at least it was a living wasn't it exactly um yeah so if uh if you want to access any bonus content we've got bonus episodes one which is dropping in two days time by mm-hmm. the time you're listening to this uh so if you want to access all that cool stuff then you can head over and support us at patreon.com slash seeing red podcast uh, we've got 120 of you over there now supporting us each month which is absolutely amazing it really does yeah and it's i can't emphasize enough what that support means to us and it it really does make all of the difference i think doesn't it mm-hmm, definitely and join us over on social media and have a chat with us about this week's case yeah we'll see you over there guys yeah take care until next week we'll see you then see you then bye bye